Good morning. morning. Good to see everybody out this morning. As always, another fine week and another great uh, time of worship and praise to the Father. It's wonderful to be um, around brothers and sisters uh, each morning. And of course, as we've been talking about in our Bible class in the mornings, um, Sunday mornings about being an encourager, and this last chapter was was really, really good. It was definitely something that encouraged me and challenged me a little bit. And uh, uh, so if you haven't had a chance, there's some extra books up on the pew uh, up front here. And we'd love to have you uh, on Sunday mornings for that class uh, as it is uh, very beneficial, I think. I think it's a lesson that we all need to learn. Speaking of lessons we all need to learn, uh, we'll turn our attention this morning to Jude. Uh, our reading last week was First, Second, and Third John and Jude. Um, and as I mentioned last week, we are um, taking the, the love letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we're doing an uh, evening sermon series on those three uh, epistles. And uh, we'll continue that tonight as we look at one of the major themes and one of the major reasons for the themes uh, in the gospel, or I'm sorry, in the epistles of John, that is the deity of Christ and why it was necessary. So we're going to look at Gnosticism um, a little bit this evening as we... Um, Dive deeper into that, and of course, uh, I'll give an outline of First John as well. The Epistle of Jude, uh, go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. If you have a hard time finding it, turn to Revelation and then go back to the beginning of Revelation, and it's probably the page right before Revelation. It's a short letter, um, just one chapter long. Um, but the uh, letter begins, as many Letters begin with first a greeting from Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. But then he goes into, in verse 3, he talks about his original desire uh, about writing to them, about their common salvation that is shared in Christ. It's interesting that he shares this little tidbit before he starts into his letter. Um, I intended to write to you about these things, however, something else has come up, and I think we need to talk about that. Um, because I think that's a little bit more important. Verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the need to change this purpose then is what we see in the next verse. In verse 4 he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now the fact that people crept in unnoticed, that should be a warning for us. The fact that such a thing could happen, even in spite of the many warnings that were given by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, and other apostles, that these things would happen, how much easier then for is this or could this happen today, in spite of the many warnings that have been given, when we live in such a time that's far removed from those warnings? The fact remains that it does happen. It happened then, and it continues to happen today, and it will continue to happen until the end. And so in light of this, Jude's call to contend for the faith becomes even more relevant for us today. We ought to appreciate the need to contend for the faith And we should understand the how when it pertains to uh, contending for the faith still today. And those are our two main topics that we're going to look at today, our two main bullet points, if you will. So we'll start off looking more closely at the need to contend for faith. 
Some will deny the all-sufficiency of the Scriptures. What that means is that they deny that the Scripture is enough for us to contend for the faith, that the Scripture is enough for faith alone. Now, I infer this need, this is the first, uh, the first need that we have, uh, or the first reason why there is a need, rather. Um, and I infer this from the phrase that, that Jude uses in verse 3. He says, "...the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints." The expression once for all can also be worded one time for all time. That is, the faith, the body of doctrine which we are to believe, was delivered to the church one time for all time. The revelation of God that we have in Scripture was not going to be revealed again. It's not going to be um, added to. There's nothing more going to be added to it later on. The fact that God has revealed all that He would have us know is evident from such statements that we have from apostles like Paul, who told the Ephesian elders that he had not shunned. Uh, In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, he told them to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And Peter, uh, he wrote that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So if we have all things and we have the whole counsel of God, what else is there? You see, the Scriptures, which contain the faith once delivered for all, contains everything that we need. contains everything we need to become what God wants of us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16-17 through 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's enough. But people may still suggest that God's revelation is incomplete, or that it's still in progress, that we're still being revealed, we're still learning new things from God each and every day. I hear of these, I'll put it in, air quotes, prophets who get fresh things from God and say that, well, you know, God says that we should do this. You know, there are whole faiths, that, uh, whole religious beliefs that are based around that concept, that I receive something totally different, and so this is how we need to live. This is how we need to do things. If that's the case, in which in many cases it is, then our task is to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered for all. And not to fall into anything that has been added to or removed from that. And that leads us to our next point. Some will pervert the doctrine of grace. So Jude um, talks about in verse 4. There were those in Jude's day, as Jude put it, who turned the grace of, God, grace of our God into sensuality, or your uh, other translations may have lewdness or shamefulness. Their doctrine of grace gave them excuse to sin. So much so that they engaged in what was openly shameful because they believed that, well, God's grace was enough. And perhaps they said something along the lines of, let us sin so that grace may abound. Something that Paul addressed in his letter to the Romans. There are some today who pervert the grace of God in this way. They 
do this to excuse uh, their disregard for the commands that are found in God's will. They do so to justify a lifestyle that is contrary to the principles of the Bible. And something I've heard all too often is something along the lines of God is too loving, His grace is too wonderful to condemn us when we are so sincere. But those who contend for the faith should be ever mindful of what the grace of God truly teaches. And Paul gives us a glimpse into that in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glory, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You Paul tells us that we are in our life, in our in our walk, in our ministry, in the way that we present ourselves as Christians, in the way we share our faith and teach the gospel, we are to rebuke and to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. And when we go back and we think about those who have perverted the doctrine of grace that are doing so for their own selfish desires, it all comes back to ungodliness and worldly passions. These are the desires of my heart. Why can't I have what my heart wants? Those sorts of things. He says we need to live soberly. We need to live righteously and godly in the present age. And then Paul rounds out this statement echoing what Jude has been proclaiming and Jude is pushing. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Contend earnestly for the faith. But even still, in that last word there that Uh, Paul puts out there, rebuke with all authority. Authority is a problem that people have a problem with. People have a problem with authority. And when we look at our younger generations and we look at some of the things that are going on in the world today, a lot of it comes from the lack of respect of authority. Something that if you look 50, 60 years ago, or even more, as we just celebrated um, December 7th, that you respected authority. And you look back at the people of those days, sure, there were those that didn't respect authority, but for the most part, that's what you got. Children were raised to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. They were raised to respect the leaders around them, police officers, law enforcement, firefighters, etc., They showed respect. But the problem that many had in in Jude's day and still do today is that they deny God's authority. We're not talking about man's authority. We're talking about God's authority. Jude had to deal with those who deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, he says in verse 4. Now the emphasis in his phrasing there appears to be on the term Lord, which is used to describe both God and Jesus. Now, the term Lord in the Greek is uh, kurios, 
which is related to the word kuros, which is supremacy. And so the word means supreme in authority. A supreme being in authority. These people were denying that authority that rightly belonged to God and to Jesus. And today we often face people who deny the authority of God and Jesus as well. We see it all over the place. Whether it's by their lack of respect for the Word of God, or by their setting up other standards of authority for what they believe or do. Things like a synod or a convention or a council, or a pope, a bishop, or a minister, or their own person that they've established as a person of authority on this subject and what they teach, that's what I'm going to follow. That's why I always encourage not to just take my words that I say at face value, but go and expand your own study and learn from it. Make sure that the things that I am teaching are what the Bible teaches. Because if you just follow blindly at the words that I say, then I could easily come up here and teach you wrong things. And you just take them for face value. And that's what has happened time and time again. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I strive to teach the truth in love. And that truth comes from the Word of God because I respect the authority of Jesus and God and His inspired Word that we have been provided. Those who contend for the faith, however, that was once delivered for all the saints, should recognize the authority which belongs to Christ. Matthew 28, verse 18. Uh, If you flip over there real quick. Right before uh, Jesus gives the Great Commission, in verse 18 he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Whoa. All right. I have the power of the PowerPoint. That's the only authority that's been given me. Uh, Jesus says, All authority has been given in heaven and earth has been given to me. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about the authority of of Christ. If you turn over there real quick, Ephesians chapter 1, we'll go through a couple verses here. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 20. Uh, He's talking about Christ uh, was raised from the dead and seated uh, Christ at His right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Jesus was given all authority. He said it himself. Paul echoes it to the Ephesians. Not only should we recognize the authority that belongs to Christ, but we should also recognize the authority that he gave to his apostles as well. Look at John chapter 13, verse 20. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one 
who sent me. That's a big, bold statement that Jesus makes about his apostles. Whoever, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And we just read the Great Commission there. Jesus sent the apostles. He was given all authority and he sent the apostles in all authority. And whoever receives them receives Christ. And this is something that we see exemplified by the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because the apostles' teaching had authority. Because that authority was given to them by Christ, who was also given all authority. So we need to recognize those things. So clearly the need to contend earnestly for the faith is something that we must heed today as well. Just as there were those in Jude's day who denied the all-sufficiency of God's word, who perverted the doctrine of grace and denied the authority of God and Jesus, so too are there those uh, such people today. So then, let's get to the how. How can we contend for the faith today in the face of all of this? Well, we first need to contend earnestly. The New King James, the King James adds that word earnestly in there, and it's really derived from the expression in the Greek, um, epagonizomai, bless me, um, which is translated contend earnestly. And it's related to the English word agony. And you can actually hear it in the middle of the word, epagonizomai, agony. The term is associated with strife and combat. The present tense of the verb indicates that the Christian struggle is to be continuous. Jude believed that the foundational blocks of the Christian faith were under attack, and nothing but vigorous counter-contention would suffice. And the use of such expression also suggests that this matter is serious and that we are at war. Paul describes the nature of our warfare in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Read verses 3 through 6 here. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And Paul again expresses this in his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 10 through 13. Here he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 
This is not a time to be unprepared. This is a time in which we must arm ourselves. And we must therefore contend with vigor, even to the point of agony, for the faith once delivered to the saints. It is a battle, a spiritual battle that wages. And we must use the weapons that are at our disposal. You know, Paul defines those weapons in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 18. Now he talks about the whole armor of God, and then he goes on to explain exactly what that whole armor of God is. It's girded with truth. It is the breastplate of righteousness, feet adorned with the gospel of peace, wielding the shield of faith, placing the helmet of salvation upon our head, and carrying the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And he wraps all of that up to inform us to be on watch with all prayer. I want you to notice that most of those things are things that are for our own defense so that we won't get lost in the struggle. The elements of truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, etc., those are all things that are needed for our own salvation. But they're also the things for those we seek to save. Those whom we battle against. Those who may pervert the gospel of grace. Those who may deny the authority of God. Just because they do those things does not mean that God does not want them to come to repentance. God wants all to come to repentance. He doesn't desire anyone to perish. And so while they may be in that state, the battle that we are, are, are fighting, the contention, we're contending for the faith, we're standing firm, we're standing up for the faith. And whether or not they want to join us in that faith and believe that faith, of course, is their own choice. But some people are really quick to take up the sword, but they leave behind the rest of their armor. You know, Paul has something to say as well about the other weapons that are mighty in God. Qualities like the meekness and gentleness of Christ that he details in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-6. through 6. We're making sure that we are spiritual first, and then displaying the gentleness and caution. That's what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23-26. through 26. Paul again encourages us to refrain from quarrels, applying gentleness, applying the word, and doing so with patience and humility while correcting the opposition. Second Timothy chapter two, verses twenty-three through twenty-six, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see, Paul explains there to Timothy that while they are doing the wrong thing, God desires repentance. And that perhaps by our gentleness, by our proper application of the word with patience and humility and love, by the way, big word there, love, 
that they too can, be, can come to repentance. The call to contend earnestly for the faith is not a license to engage in contentions or outbursts of wrath. These things, as we saw in our study on the fruits of the Spirit, those are the opposites of the good fruits. Instead, it is a call to vigorously contend with all the weapons that we have at our disposal. First and foremost, with the Word of God. And the order in which this is applied is important. We apply the Word of God first to ourself and then to others. Teaching of Jesus about sawdust in your eye before you take the plank, or get the plank out of your own eye before you get the speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye. We also need to do so with the Christ-like qualities that are mighty in God to win people over to obedience to Christ. It is the fact that many are not obeying Christ as Lord, but perverting His teaching or setting themselves up as their own authority, or maybe relying on somebody else as the authority. Those things make it necessary that we contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Church, whose side of the battle are you on? Have you submitted to Him whom God has made both Lord and Christ? Are you continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine? Are you contending for the faith? Or are you struggling? Maybe you're struggling with your own faith. Maybe you're struggling with something that's going on in your own life. The beauty of Christ is that He set up a wonderful kingdom, which is His church. The called out the believers, the saints that it was referred to in our reading. And we're here to encourage one another to build up, to love and good works, but also to assist you when you're in that dark spot of life that you think you can't get out of. How can we assist you this morning with your walk? Maybe you desire to begin your walk this morning by being baptized into Christ. Or perhaps you desire more study or prayer or anything else. If there's anything that we can assist you with, won't you come forward now while we stand and sing?